For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. So welcome to the History of the Heavyweight Championship of the World, a podcast from Yahoo with me, Steve Bunce. Watch now, down he goes for the count of ten. In this series, I will take a look at one year in the sports history. I will cover all the heavyweight championship fights, the stories, characters, outrageous acts, fairy tales, knockouts, controversies, inventions, and one or two lies. Well, certainly the truth being stretched. In short, all the details that matter. I start in 1960 with men that changed the sport forever. This will be no contest. This will be a total annihilation. Just be at the fight. I'm ready to back up everything I'm saying. But it's about more than just Muhammad Ali and his fights for the title. I will look at the careers of the champions from a decade of change and the unknown young boxers, prospects, potential champions and boxers, dreamers and schemers. Some won sports richest prize, some are lost, dead men in obscurity. The modern history of the heavyweight championship starts in the late 19th century with the last great bare-knuckle champion, John L. Sullivan, the Boston strong boy. His bare-knuckle reign was part love, part hate. He was the champion of a banned sport. He fought on river barges to avoid police raids. In 1892, James J. Corbett, an American, won the heavyweight world title wearing gloves with a three-round knockout of John L. Sullivan. That's the start, the birth of the heavyweight championship of the world. Corbett lost his title to Bob Fitzsimmons in 1897. After Corbett and Fitzsimmons, the championship followed a clear path. Ruby Robb, as Fitzsimmons was known, lost to James J. Jeffries. There was then Tommy Burns, who lost to Jack Johnson, who lost to Jess Willard, who lost to Jack Dempsey, who lost to Gene Tunney. A nice lineal route to the throne was established from 1908 until 1928 when Tunney quit. There were still illegal fights in gold mining towns, crooked fights, men were shot, champions were in fixed fights and the first million dollar fight took place. It was a lawless title at times. Then came a run of mixed champions. Max Schmeling, the German paratrooper, Primo Carnera, the ambling Alp, James J. Braddock, known as the Cinderella Man and Joe Louis, the brown bomber and his decade as the king. In 1952, Rocky Marciano cleaned up in savage style. They were not all great champions, but the public at the time knew the name of the heavyweight champion of the world. In 1956, Rocky was undefeated in 49 fights when he retired. I would like to announce my retirement from boxing at this time. The heavyweight championship of the world had come a long, long way from the bare-knuckle brutality of John L. Sullivan just 60 or so years earlier to Rocky's exit. It was the richest prize in sport, the greatest title any man could win, and this is its story. Cassius Marcellus Clay, the champ, aged 24, in his own view the greatest and the prettiest, but as others see him, the loudest and the brashest, arrogant, boastful, sometimes hysterical. It's all here, every fighter and fight that matters. Welcome to 1960. 
We start in 1960 with a kid called Cassius Clay and a deposed champion called Floyd Patterson and an improbable world champion called Ingemar Johansson. These were heady days. But I have to go back a few months from the start of the year, back to June 1959 to be precise, when Johansson from Sweden became the first boxer from Europe since 1934 to be crowned the world heavyweight champion. It was a shocker. And the champion from 1934 was the great, incompetent, comic and ultimately tragic Primo Carnera, a man mounting from Italy. Big Primo Carnera was slower than a statue. Primo had been a circus freak before he was transformed into a boxer by a rabble of very unscrupulous individuals. He won the title in the most dubious of fights when he knocked out the champion, Jack Sharkey, by landing a punch that nobody saw. That was a bad time for the sport. The business of boxing was controlled by a fraternity of criminals, the legal and the illegal type. It was a time that tarnished the sport forever. In 1959, Johansson was just the wrong man in the wrong place. Well, that's how Patterson, the champion, saw it. If you were Swedish, he was the right man in the right place at the right time. Ingo, as he was known, connected with his bingo, as it was known, to knock out Patterson in the summer of 1959. Patterson left the venue wearing a hat pulled down over his face and his collar pulled up. He wanted to be an invisible man that night, The shame was too much. The rematch was set for June 1960. In 1960, the fight public still loved the former world heavyweight champion Rocky Marciano. The rock, the legend, the icon. Marciano had walked away from the sport in 1956. His title as undisputed champion intact. His record perfect. 49 wins in 49 fights. The rock was hard, tough and could take a man out with just one punch. But he had walked away at the right time. There was a murderous row of fighters waiting with their eyes on the ageing rock. But the rock, well, he was gone. I would like to announce my retirement from boxing at this time. Why? Why? Because of my family, wife, daughter, and my folks. How does your wife feel about it, Rocky? Well, she has... Uh, last year and a half or two years, she's asked me when. I would call it a day. And I promised her that soon, always soon, but definitely try to stay retired. I like to profit by others' mistakes. And if Joe Lewis couldn't make a successful comeback, I will not try it. Well, how do you feel physically now, Rocky? I feel perfect, and I will be starting to play golf pretty soon. In 1959, Patterson was still struggling to get out of Marciano's shadow. He was struggling long before Ingo's bingo sent him down and out. Patterson started 1960 as the number one contender for Johansson's World Heavyweight Championship. Johansson was in no rush to get back in the ring. Patterson had not been considered a great champion, but neither was he a terrible champion. He had been criticised for not fighting the best men when he was champion. Nothing new there. I always considered Patterson a built-up novice, but this Johansson, he's a real fighter, said Gene Tunney, heavyweight champion and fighting darling from the 20s. The brutal truth is that Patterson did have a very good challenger, a feared and fearsome man called Charles Sonny Liston. He was an ex-convict, an enforcer for organised crime when he was not cracking skulls in the ring. And in 1960, he was on a destructive run. He was a very dangerous man. 
1960, Liston beat the very best American heavyweights, men that Patterson had shown no desire to fight. He knocked out Cleveland Williams in Houston in two rounds. He knocked out Zora Foley in three rounds in Denver. And then, to end a magnificent year, he met Eddie Machin and won on points over 12 rounds. He also knocked out, in just 143 seconds, a man called Roy Harris. It was a massacre. Now, in 1958, Patterson had stopped Harris in round 12 of a world title defence. Liston was pursuing Patterson with a vengeance. He was, at that point, an unstoppable machine. He was also, sadly, invisible. It was a disgrace that Liston was ignored. Sonny's run of wins in 1960 is arguably one of the most impressive sequence of wins in one calendar year to ever take place in the heavyweight division. Foley, Machen and Williams all deserved a shot at Patterson between 1956 when he won the title and 1959 when he was taken clean out by Johansson. Their exclusion is a blot on the sport. The reason so many top American heavyweights had to sit and watch and beg for a shot was simple. One man, one all-powerful man, a rogue, a maverick, a complex man. His name, Customato. And he controlled Patterson and, more importantly, he controlled the men he fought. It's the same Cuss who discovered a 14-year-old boy called Mike Tyson 20 years later. D'Amato was a control freak. His mentality was simple. He had the champion and he was not about to let the champion lose any time soon. And Cuss would do a deal with anybody to keep that title for his man. He certainly played loose with the finer details of the law. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Patterson won the vacant world heavyweight title in 1956 when he beat the ancient Archie Moore. Moore was having his 189th fight. Yes, 189 fights. Archie turned professional in 1935, 21 years earlier. He was 40 at the time he fought Patterson, but he could have been 45. Nobody knows for sure. Certainly not Archie. In 1990, old Archie Moore, known in the ring as the Old Mongoose, was in London with George Foreman. When Foreman, on his way to regaining the world heavyweight title, knocked out somebody called Terry Anderson in less than three minutes. That night was a riot. Moore tried to be as dignified as he could, but Anderson seemed to flutter and collapse at the faintest of foul breezes left behind by the big right that the even bigger George launched in his direction. Incidentally, in Foreman's next fight, he lost on points over 12 rounds for the world heavyweight title to Evander Holyfield. George would eventually win back his world heavyweight title when he knocked out Michael Moore in 1994. 
Mora went down that night like he was being poured from a spoon. He formed an ugly puddle in the Las Vegas ring. Mora had taken the title from Holyfield. Foreman was 45 the night he won back the world heavyweight title. The oldest champion ever. That's a record, my friend, that might just last forever. Can you imagine Anthony Joshua fighting for another 17 or so years? D'Amato let Patterson make his first defence against a fighter called Tommy Jackson. Patterson had beat Jackson in 1956, and guess what? He did the same in 1957, stopping Tommy in round 10 of the 15-round fight. It was a cruel spectacle. The type of fight you watch through your fingers from ringside and hope none of the flying blood lands on your shirt. In Patterson's second defence, he met a man having his very first professional fight. Pete Rademacher had won the Olympic gold medal in 1956 in Melbourne and decided, eventually, to turn professional. It was a truly bizarre fight. Patterson was dropped in round two, more stunned than hurt. He then dropped and hurt brave Pete until the massacre was stopped in round six. Pete later invented a motorised tricycle. I spoke to him a few years ago and he was a happy soul. He remains a unique member of the World Heavyweight Championship Fight Club. Nobody will ever fight for the World Heavyweight title in their first professional fight. Never. That record will belong to Sweet Pete Raidmaker forever. The next defence was against Roy Harris. Harris, by the way, was from a place in Texas called Cut and Shoot. No hyphens, incidentally. His showdown with Patterson was a bit of a culture shock. It was a black urban champion against a rural white southerner challenger. We used the N-word. It was the only word we knew. It wasn't said with hate, claimed Harris. The cut-and-shoot fighter had to drink beer to gain back the 20 pounds that he had lost during his training regime. That's true. I couldn't invent that. Good old boy Roy was stopped in the 12th round. Then in May 1959, Patterson met a Blackpool nightclub owner called Brian London. I'm not inventing this, really. It did happen. And that lasted into round 11 before it was called off. London had been stopped in one round by Henry Cooper three years earlier. And four months before the Patterson fight, Cooper had beaten London again, that time for the British heavyweight title. Cooper was on the shortlist to fight Patterson, but he had asked for far too much money. Big Brian was lucky to get the call, lucky to get the world title shot. Johansson was ringside and he watched, stunned at how bad he thought Patterson was. Ingo was not impressed. The big Swede left ringside confident that he would win. He had less than eight weeks to wait before the fight. London had been a perfect opponent, according to the way Cuss picked the men to fight his Floyd. They were handpicked for safety. Sounds harsh, but it's true. And to be fair, so was Ingemar Johansson. He was another perfect pick. A European with a lot of wins over, well, Europeans. It was just another defence, another fight to keep Floyd away from Sonny Liston. But Cuss had not looked close enough, or, what is more likely, was simply too arrogant. Johansson had stopped Cooper, our Henry, in Stockholm in 1957, knocked out Cooper in the fifth round for the European title. And then, in Gothenburg, in the fight before the Patterson fight, There had been a real warning, a very serious warning. Ingo landed the bingo and knocked out previously unbeaten Eddie Machin in the very first round. The Machin fight probably had the most distressing ending I have ever seen. It's gruesome. The referee is truly hopeless. That win should have placed Johansson in the Who Needs Him club. It never did, and that was a bad, bad mistake. 
Why did Cuss agree to the fight? It's a mystery even now. Machen, remember, could not get near Patterson and had taken the Swedish payday instead. It was meant to be so easy. Machen was sent tumbling three times, bang, bang and out. Customato should have gently refused a big Swede, but he accepted. The fight was actually signed and sealed in January. And in June 1959, it was Floyd's turn to get bounced all over the ring. Patterson lost his title and was on the canvas seven times in the third round. And that is where it ended. There had to be a rematch. Also, after one of the knockdowns, Patterson had looked directly into the eyes of ringside guest John Wayne. The look the Duke gave him hurt. He told me that. He had to win to get rid of that look. The Duke never did pity. The look haunted poor Floyd. It is said Patterson never left his house for a month. It sure felt like a month, Patterson told me in 1992, when he was in London with his fighter, Donovan Razor Ruddock. Ruddock was knocked out by Lennox Lewis a few days after I spoke to Patterson. Not long after losing his title, Patterson and his trainer, the sombre Dan Florio, shut themselves away in a near-derelict nightclub to start to prepare for redemption. At one point, they were snowed in for three days at the rat-infested outpost. Patterson had to get revenge. As part of the plan, he would come in heavier and not give away as much weight in the rematch. Johansson had been a stone heavier in the first fight. That had been a mistake by Patterson and his people. One of his people in the rematch was a lawyer called Roy Conn, a controversial, confrontational man. He was increasingly involved in the promotion. He would, 20 years later, be a great influence on Donald Trump. Trump himself had a brush with the world heavyweight title when he was briefly Mike Tyson's advisor. Con hired Joe Louis as advisor to Patterson. It was more than just a publicity stunt. Louis had a lot of good tactical and technical ideas. Big Ingo did not shut himself away. He did not go into isolation. Instead, he did his own thing and never stopped grinning. He set up his luxury training camp at Grossinger's, a holiday resort in the Catskill Mountains, about 100 miles north of New York City. The luxury was not the problem. The problem was that he had broken one of boxing's sacred taboos. Johansson had his girlfriend in camp with him. Birgit Lundgren had impressed the travelling British press. Peter Wilson of the Daily Mirror, never shy about going over the top, wrote about Birgit that she looked in a candy-striped pink-and-white cotton frock, as cool and delectable as a strawberry ice with a scoop of cream on it. That's the info we want from a training camp. Forget the names of the sparring partners. She sat on his knee during interviews, cooing and blowing kisses into his ears. The American fight press was outraged. I mean outraged. They were already fully sickened that the champion was from Europe, but girlfriends in camp was an insult too far for them. The rematch was on, June 1960, the polo grounds in New York. By the way, American pride was also the prize. On the night, 31892 paid. The gross for the gate, the TV, cinema and radio rights was an impressive $2,251,162. Patterson was guaranteed $771,232 and Johansson, the champion, slightly less, $643,107. Those are good paydays. 
This is the big one, for real, for record books to build into boxing history, wrote George Whiting, one of the finest on Britain's Fleet Street. Whiting was writing in the London Evening Standard. Whiting was also ringside. I could tell at the start that he knew he was fighting a different Floyd, said Patterson. I could see it in his eyes. Patterson was angry, angry at the press, angry at himself for losing. He had also taken the precaution of having a theatrical fake beard and moustache made. He also had a hat and glasses ready in his changing room, just in case he lost again. He planned to go off into the dark night if he lost, and nobody would recognise the broken-hearted boxer. It was all over in the fifth. Patterson had won just about every round up until that point. Two left hooks put an end to Ingo's reign. The second was Savage. Here's Wilson, dubbed the man they couldn't gag, writing in the Daily Mirror. Johansson went down terrifyingly. His frame like a sack of potatoes topped by a melon. And it was the melon which slammed with sickening force against the boards. Johansson lay like a dead man. It took Johansson ten minutes to recover. He was out cold, unresponsive for four minutes. There were chaotic scenes at ringside. Whiting again. Millionaires, movie stars, mannequins, politicians, punks, peanut vendors and assorted celebrities rampaged around the ritzy ringside. Patterson became the first heavyweight to regain the title. The fight, sadly, was the only world heavyweight championship fight in 1960. It was also the 10th consecutive stoppage in a world heavyweight title fight, but only the fifth fight in three years for the title. The heavyweight revolution was close and the sport would change forever after 1960. It needed to change. It needed to become a modern business and leave behind the fixed fight black and white days. Away from the professional game, something very special was happening. In August 1960, in Rome, at the Olympics, the world was introduced to an 18-year-old kid. His name, Cassius Marcellus Clay. Clay would become Muhammad Ali soon enough, but in that long, late Roman summer, he was still little Cassius. He had won six Kentucky Golden Gloves championships, four national titles, and was considered by Sports Illustrated as the best American prospect for gold in the boxing at the Rome Olympics. Clay was fighting at light heavyweight, and his route to the final was hard. He had to beat the Russian and the awkward Australian Tony Madigan. He did, and then in a the final, the gold medal fight, he was facing Poland's Zibnu Peter Zykowski. The Pole had won three European titles, was a bronze medal winner at the Helsinki Olympics. It was always going to be difficult for Clay to have a fairy tale ending. After two rounds, it was close, very tight. I knew I had to take the final round big to win, said Clay, and he was right. He won the round. Muhammad turned it on in the last round. He was dancing, flicking out his beautiful jab. We saw Muhammad Ali for the first time, remembers Gene Kilroy, who was in Rome for the Olympics. Kilroy would later become Ali's business manager, facilitator and close, close friend. Gene carried the coffin at the funerals of both of Ali's parents. Patterson was also in Rome to watch Clay win the gold. They met there briefly. I might have to fight you one day, Clay warned Patterson. Patterson laughed. Clay returned from Rome. He signed professional terms and in October he had his first fight. He fought a part-time fighter and full-time police chief from Fayetteville in West Virginia called Tunney Hunsaker. I told people after the fight that Clay would be the world champion and I was right, said Hunsaker. Clay won on points and six weeks later, on December 19th, he was in Miami at the famous Fifth Street Gym, training with Angelo Dundee. 
the greatest relationship in boxing was about to start. Dundee and Ali had their first fight together in Miami, a city of the dispossessed and the desperate, on December the 27th, 1960. The world of heavyweight boxing was put on warning. The change was coming. Their revolution had started. Watch now. Down he goes for the count of ten. 